0: This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. It's a pleasure to be with everyone tonight to talk to you about uh, some of the technologies that we're developing in my lab to diagnose and treat disorders in the nervous system and what's called neuromodulation devices. So for those who are not familiar with this field, neuromodulation is the targeted interrogation of the activity in the nervous system. And many of us know that the nervous system exchanges information between our brain and parts of the body through the spinal cord by electrical signals, charged ions. And so it's natural to use the electrical modality to interrogate the Uh, nervous system, and to be able to understand how it functions and when there's a function, how to treat it. Um, Electrical stimulation has been used for many decades uh, for uh, treating disorders or diagnosing disorders in in humans uh, because it's effective and it's safe. And one of the most popular examples in which neuromodulation devices are being used is in pain management, um, particularly for uh, lower back pain and uh, leg pain. And in this case, uh, an implantable pulse generator that you see on this picture on the right is implanted on the back of the patient, connected with some wires to leads that deliver electrical pulses to the surface of the spinal cord. And these electrical pulses uh, basically interject with the pain signal and prohibits its uh, um, flow to the brain. And some examples of, um, of the devices that are being implanted are shown over here on the left. These uh, are, um, have dimensions of about one centimeter in width, and the contacts, which are typically made of biocompatible platinum material that delivers the electrical pulses, uh, are of the order of a few millimeters. Now, the same type of of devices has been used in trials in patients with spinal cord injury. And when one uh, controls where the stimulation is delivered at which contact and or which combination of contacts and at what time uh, one is able to basically provoke or uh, initiate um, uh, excitation into the motor neurons to be able to move the muscles. And as such, patients who have been Uh, basically paralyzed uh, due to spinal cord injury, can now stand up and walk in what is referred to as assisted locomotion. And the example shown uh, over here is from a trial that's done in in Europe and Switzerland, but there are many centers also in the U.S. that are working uh, for similar outcomes. Now, in terms of uh, brain implants, um, some of the most popular use for neuromodulation devices is for patients with movement disorders, such as with Parkinson's disease, where uh, deep brain stimulation is used in order uh, to limit a tremor in, in these patients. Uh, another um, set of uh, clinical trials uh, is also targeted toward Uh, spinal cord injury, um, but in this case with brain implants, so this is for brain-machine interfaces, and the example we see right here uh, comes from Johns Hopkins Applied Physics Lab, where a paralyzed patient has been implanted with six electrodes on both sides of the brain, and using his thoughts that are decoded by these implantable uh, electrodes, using the electrical signals that they evoke, um, he's able to basically control or robotic arms, and to cut the piece of cake in front of himself and feed himself. So these are all you know, very promising results in the, uh, in the research uh, clinical trials, as well as in the uh, therapeutic applications that we have just discussed for brain, uh, for Parkinson's disease and also for the pain uh, management. So today, what I'm going to, to do is uh, talk a little bit about the types of signals that we aim to measure with these technologies and summarize some recent efforts or state-of-the-art in neurotechnology and then discuss UCSD's efforts uh, for uh, developing high-resolution neurotechnology to interface with both the brain and the spinal cord. And I'll uh, walk you through some of the development efforts, the controls that we do, and uh, look at the safety measures uh, that we take before we translate these devices from the lab to the bedside. And then I'll show some of the applications in mapping the human brain using these devices. And so the fundamental unit that processes information in our brain is called the neuron, and we have about 80 billion uh, of such neurons on average in in our brain, and these form a quadrillion of synapses or connections between them. And the uh, gold standard technique to be able to measure the changes in potentials Across this neuron cell membrane is referred to as a patch clamp technique, which allows us basically to get very close to the surface of the cell and measure the small potential fluctuations that happen within the cell. And those potential fluctuations happen uh, due to the movement of ions through what's called ion gate channels. And these ions are like salt ions, charged ions, basically, in uh, the uh, medium uh, where we have in the tissue, basically, where we have uh, all of uh, of these neurons. And dysfunction um, in these ion-gate channels is usually correlated with neurodegenerative diseases. And so uh, a lot of the technology aims at uh, understanding how these small potential fluctuations regulate disease or normal function uh, in the brain. Now, um, uh, as I mentioned, the gold standard is to measure each cell to be able to deduce how these small changes coordinate function. And there are technologies that are being developed that will allow us to look at hundreds and potentially thousands of of these cells in what's called the brain on a chip. Type uh, approach, we can do that, but in intact brains, this is really very hard to accomplish, especially for millions of uh, uh, of neurons. And so, the way we currently uh, interrogate or record brain activity uh, is generally using three types of electrodes: ones that sit on the surface of the scalp. And these measure low-frequency oscillations that are associated, basically, with long wavelengths that can reach further above the skull. Another type of electrodes is uh, 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 electrocorticography electrodes that sit on the surface of the brain directly under the skull. Because they are closer to the cells, these can measure slightly higher frequencies. Uh, over, you know, distributed large areas of the brain typically. And then uh, there are electrodes that are penetrating to the structure or the tissue of, of the brain, and those can get close to individual cells and therefore be able to pick up the activity from single Neurons, and so those allow us to measure basically broadband activity, but because they penetrate through the tissue and they cause damage when they do so, we usually limit their implantation size to a very small uh, area so then the challenge in, in recording broadband activity from the brain to capture the full spectrum of this activity uh, over extended areas uh, is is indeed this dilemma between uh, how fine of the details that we need to measure and over how much of the brain we need to measure it. So if we want to do high resolution, as illustrated earlier, this is going to be in a very small area of the brain. If we want to do large area coverage, we'll spread these measuring contacts over uh, larger spacing, and therefore the resolution is lost. And this is limited by the number of channels that these electrodes Uh, usually are composed of, which is typically a few tens or hundreds. So then what we are doing at UCSD is uh, basically looking at advances in the display industry and exploiting these advances uh, to employ uh, the new technology in mapping activity from the brain or the spinal cord. And those advances allowed us to have the high-resolution displays that we uh, all you know, benefit from, and you're watching me through today. And, and it has advanced to a point where it's flexible and foldable uh, so that it can basically confirm to the tissue, uh, whether it's the surface of a brain or uh, a cylindrical nerve or spinal cord. Well, there are more issues than just a number of channels that uh, that we need to account for when we think about interfacing with the nervous system, and one of these uh, issues is the mechanical mismatch between the measurement tools and the tissue itself, and so we need to make sure that the measurement tool is soft so that it can be compliant uh, to the movements and uh, conformal to the curvature uh, of the tissue. It, doesn't have to be disruptive to the tissue, so it needs to have uh, minimal size. Um, also, when it operates, it needs to produce minimal amount of heat so that it doesn't raise the temperature to dangerous levels. So, usually, you want to limit the temperature rise below one degree C above body temperature. Uh, it needs to consume minimal amount of power so that the battery or the power regulation unit is going to be small and needs to operate with a high uh, data bandwidth and transfer rate in real time so that we can uh, basically assess and control prosthetics, for instance, uh, in real time. So uh, over the next f- a few slides, we'll uh, talk about some of the state-of-the-art technologies that uh, are being used in research and then clinically and then move on to the UCSD technology. Uh, so this is one example in which uh, Very small shanks, uh, looks like threads or fibers that have multiple contacts on them, um, can be implanted in the tissue of of the brain. And and many of you might be familiar with the the efforts at uh, Neuralink, where they use an advanced robot to implant those threads by avoiding the blood vessels. And with this approach, they can go to uh, several thousands of uh, of contacts implanted in uh, regions of a millimeter scale. Now, these are being used in animal trials, and and soon enough, we might be seeing them uh, being used in human trials. Now, clinically, uh, some of the most advances come from technologies that we already use for diagnostic purposes, like in epilepsy monitoring, for example. Um, Clinicians use a grid that looks like the one that you see here on the lower left, which has a a lot of platinum contacts, up to 256 channels usually, that are spaced by a few millimeters apart. So the uh, lab uh, of Eddie Chang at UCSF have really exploited this technology to advance the field of uh, uh, prosthetics, or in particular, speech uh, prosthesis far ahead. Um, Basically, what they have done is uh, recorded the neural activity that's associated with the production of sounds by monitoring the kinematics of the uh, mouth movement. And then using decoders, they were able to, uh, just using the neural signals, predict what the patient is trying to say without moving his mouth. And this is an effort that's um, led at at UCSF, but also uh, significant advances are being done at many other labs in the US and uh, and other places. So this is uh, a picture of uh, a typical grid that's used in these trials. And it's built usually on half a millimeter thick silicone layers. The platinum contacts are usually about a millimeter in diameter, and they are about four millimeters spaced. Now, to put this in perspective, some of what we believe are computational units in the brain, the cortical columns, uh, are of the order of a millimeter in diameter or width, uh, and uh, they are, of course, stacked very close uh, to each other. So clearly, these uh, clinical grids, uh, while they have been very useful in, in treating patients, they undersample the brain activity. And if we want to make them Uh, smaller these platinum contacts, the recording reliability becomes compromised. So we uh, resort to advances in material science to allow us to make small contacts that can be stacked very close to each other and they display low noise or higher fidelity in recording these brain signals. And at UCSD, my lab is specialized mainly in this interface in making these very small contacts that can record reliably from the surface of, uh, of the brain. And so I'll show you some of the results that contrast basically our new technology with the clinical electrodes in the next few slides. So this is a, a video recording of uh, one clinical electrode placed on the surface of the brain of a patient. And you can see that uh, uh, this electrode, because it's built on a slightly thick silicone layers, it doesn't conform very well or stick very well to the cortical surface. And in some cases, uh, it has to be cut or the uh, surgeons have to apply some pressure so that uh, they could record reliably from the surface of the brain. This video shows, uh, on the other hand, our multi-thousand channel grids. In this particular case, it's a 1024 channel electrode that's built on 10-micrometer-thick biocompatible perylene material that allows it to be conformal to the surface of the brain. And it's also compliant to the brain pulsation. so with, with this conformality and compliance, there is really no movement of the contacts with respect to the tissue, and we can record with high fidelity from the brain surface. So first, we assess the functionality and the safety of uh, these devices in animals and before we translate them to, to be used in the operating room. Uh, so here we, uh, we look at a well-established model, which is the whisker-barrel Model uh, that uh, allows us basically to record activity in an organized structure of the brain by stimulating individual whiskers um, uh, on the rodent, and so in this particular case, we can see on the lower right uh, on the lower left uh, our uh, grid placed on this barrel cortex the spacing between the contacts uh, is about one hundred fifty micrometers and um, That's basically about the width or twice the width of of the human hair, and it's it's much smaller than an individual cortical column. So now when uh, we do targeted air puffs on individual whiskers, we can uh, record the uh, activity on these 1,000 channels and see that a subset of the channels have uh, large amplitudes measured, and there's a time delay between Uh, you know, some of the channels and the responses on the other channels. So there is some wave propagation. Uh, Individual whisker stimulation evokes activity in specific locations on the grid as opposed to others. So using this information now, uh, we can basically look at the functional maps for each whisker or different uh, organ uh, of the rat and uh, localize the functional boundaries that correlate with that organ. And we can see here because of the 0.15 millimeter scale or 150 micrometer scale, these functional boundaries now can be delineated at uh, sub-millimeter uh, resolution. So to make sure that the results are scientifically valid, we'll have to go through multiple experiments and we see reproducibility uh, that will give us confidence in the results that we are seeing. And then for this uh, fourth uh, subject right here, we did postmortem uh, immunohistochemical analysis. And with uh, a particular type of staining, we are able to see the organized barrel structure on the surface of the brain. So once we overlay our functional maps over that well-known procedure of staining, we found that the functional maps do correlate with the post histology. So that means you know, within a single electrode, we can really map the activity in the brain at a very high resolution. We don't need to sacrifice the animal to be able to tell where the structures are and correlate the responses with what we are measuring. And we don't need to do this serially uh, across the surface of the brain. We have a larger coverage through the grid that allows us to get the maps that uh, we have shared. And so in other cases, we implant uh, these animals for longer time to look at the stability of the material in tissue. And we can also uh, do... histology to see if there are any changes or responses in the tissue due to the implant. Now, as mandated by international standards and the FDA, we need to do biocompatibility tests before we take these devices to be used in humans. So we contract with certified medical device companies that carry out independent tests about the biocompatibility. So once the uh, device passes these tests, and it did pass for the UCSD multi-thousand channel on nanorod grids, uh, we can then seek approval from an institutional review board uh, to use these devices acutely in humans for a short duration time during the operation or take those devices to FDA for approval. Now, to get the devices to the operating room, we need to sterilize them. So, we box them in traditional or typical uh, sterilization boxes that are used in the hospital, and we go through the hospital sterilization. Then, we uh, seal our uh, recording electronics in uh, a leak tight enclosure that's also sterile so that we can separate the recording electronics from the tip of the grid that's going to be placed uh, on the patient's brain. And then we do one more uh, set of tests after this packaging uh, procedure. Once the device passes the test, we can move on to uh, to generate or do our uh, procedure um, in recording from the brain. Now, uh, some of the experiments that I'm going to show you next are done uh, in collaboration with Dr. Ahmad Rasland at Oregon Health and Sciences University in, in Portland. So one of the tasks that's typically done at the onset of neurosurgery is to localize the different brain region to what's called the central sulcus. And this is the uh, basically sulcus that separates the motor from sensory regions in the brain. And so a clinical grid, similar to the one that I showed you earlier, is applied to the surface of the brain. The patient has contacts on their hands or legs, and peripheral nerves are stimulated. With this peripheral nerve stimulation, some signals are evoked across this boundary. And if they go, if these signals basically transfer from the sensory to the motor cortex, they flip their polarity from being negative to being positive, for example. At the region where uh, they flip the polarity. We know that that's the functional central sulcus. Now, in this particular patient, when we apply our uh, our grid, uh, the results, of course, agree with the clinical grid, uh, but we can map uh, the curvilinear nature of, uh, of this boundary due to the one millimeter resolution that we have. In fact, in this particular case, because the patient had a lesion, this boundary has been pushed from the anatomical boundary, which is defined by this large vein right here to what you see as a dashed line as a functional boundary. Right? The brain reorganizes when one has uh, a lesion. Uh, so the only way to know uh, about this reorganization is to do these electrical recordings uh, uh, that uh, we are doing here. So in some cases, the, the patients are awake. And our neurosurgery residents can instruct them or engage them in behavioral experiments. So the lab also develops hardware that uh, could be placed on the hands of patients, for example, to track their movements and time lock it to the recordings uh, from the brain. And so in, in one particular case, we've done two experiments with a patient in which uh, we we placed vibrotactile stimulators on the tips of their fingers and recorded the activity and and align that activity to the mapped functional boundary that we had before. And we see discrete uh, correlates for each finger um, on top of of, of the grid. And this is basically an overlay of the functional maps on the picture of the grid on, on top of the brain's patient where we can see the distribution uh, for the correlates in the brain for each finger. These are the sensory correlates. In another experiment, we asked the patient to close their fist, and then we uh, were able to see the evolution of waves that bounce back and forth between the motor and the sensory region to coordinate uh, this movement. And uh, with the resolution that's afforded with uh, with these grids, now we can construct uh, brain waves at one hundred times higher spatial resolution than what has been uh, achieved before, or look at the brain activity in terms of waves, uh, as we can see right here. This is basically during the uh, preparation of uh, of the movement now we observed the brain waves uh, originating from the sensory toward the motor cortex. And then, when the movement uh, is completed, uh, we can see that this wave has flipped, and we have a, a time sequence uh, of this movement uh, throughout now in um, in other cases where there is a disease tissue like an epilepsy patient's. Uh, A lot of times uh, to map the disease tissue, electrical stimulation is applied to the surface of the brain while uh, the um, uh, the clinical team is observing behavioral changes in the patient in response to stimulation like uh, speech slar, for example. Now, traditionally, this is done without recording uh, because of the obstruction of the recording grid on the surface of the brain. Uh, Because our grids are thin and you can Uh, pattern holes in them uh, due to the resolution of uh, of making the contacts. Um, We have a lot of space to to do other things like making via holes. The via holes are originally intended to perfuse cerebrospinal fluid from underneath the grid so that the grid maintains a good contact with the surface of the brain. Uh, But in this case, we can also apply electrical stimulation through these holes while we are recording uh, so that we can look at the disruption of the epileptic waves um, throughout the stimulation procedure and even correlate that with behavioral changes in, uh, in the patient. So this shows uh, basically one trial right here, and there are many trials that the clinical team do, uh, in which um, we have first a stimulation artifact, and then a few seconds later, we have uh, basically uh, a lot of discharges. Some of those discharges display a wave-like characteristic. So I'm going to uh, show you next. And the uh, evolution of these waves, in this case, without stimulation, uh, we have a reconstruction of the uh, patient's brain from uh, fMRI uh, and uh, structural MRI images. And this is the location of the lesion that the uh, MRI had identified. Now we relay on top, uh, basically, patterns of the discharges. So when you see a black dot, that means there's an epileptic discharge happening there. And so what we saw, actually, on when we have spontaneous discharges without any electrical stimulation, that the discharges start at the top left, or top right in this particular image, and then spreads across the cortex and then exits from the other side. Now, in the case where bipolar stimulation is applied, and we will see in, in, a, in a second the stimulation is applied, we have a large artifact initially, and then... And this happens in the duration of milliseconds, and then we start to see these charges uh, really originating uh, from the stimulation lo- location and there would be still discharges happening in different parts of the grid, but we wouldn't have uh, any more the propagation of the signal uh, from this point on the grid to other point, uh, right? So we can see that we have persistent discharges in the simulation location. And uh, after a few seconds, that's the uh, location where the discharges really fade away, right? So uh, what does this tell us, basically, about epilepsy? With, with these trials, um, we cannot form a hypothesis yet about the different distinct nodes or the network uh, uh, in, in epilepsy. But this shows us, uh, basically, that now we can really measure these waves and we can measure these nodes and interrogate them by electrical stimulation. At at a resolution that may one day help us preserve some of the eloquent tissue in in patients uh, or be able to stimulate with lower amounts of currents so that there are no side effects uh, for patients that suffer from uh, this disease. Now, in uh, in other advances, um, uh, we can make custom-made or patient custom-made uh, grids. In this case, this is a, a tumor resection case uh, in, in a patient's brain, where we were told uh, or uh, sent the uh, MRI images of, of the patients so that we can design our grid to have the flap that could be removed and then uh, resection could happen inside the grid while we are recording, and then this flap could be placed back, and we measure the electrical activity after resection. So this will allow us to basically track the evolution of function and how it changes during the resection uh, that we hope one day uh, will help in having better patient outcomes uh, from these uh, surgeries. The lower right video shows uh, exactly uh, the approach that that I'm discussing. Describing where the neurosurgeon is resecting the the tumor, and then around the resection area, we have the grid recording throughout the whole time. So what we're trying to do is um, basically make this approach not only accurate and uh, and therapeutically beneficial, and we'd like also to uh, to help in advancing the technology so that it's uh, more comfortable during the monitoring procedure. Uh, for example, in Epilepsy monitoring, the patient can stay for up to two weeks in the monitoring unit uh, with electrodes implanted in uh, in their brain. And there's a lot of wires that are connected to these implants that are cumbersome uh, and could hurt the patient when they are trying to change clothes and, and so on. So what we're trying to do is... Um, connect our high resolution grids to a wireless um, radio implants that will allow us to transmit all of this data wirelessly without having to worry about the burden of uh, of wires. And we should be able to do that with all of the electronic advances that we have nowadays. And it's just uh, a matter of uh, adapting these advances safely to be used in humans. Another uh, set of application would be to uh, use these devices for brain-machine interfaces uh, in patients with spinal cord injury, and um, we started discussions and collaborations with colleagues who are leading this field, whether it's in motor or speech prosthesis. So in uh, the past half an hour or so, what I hope Uh, to have uh, given you an update on implantable uh, neuromodulation devices. An introduction to UCSD's uh, emerging technology for interfacing with the brain and the spinal cord. I've uh, showed you how this technology could be beneficial uh, in animals and how we translate this technology to different steps to take it to the bedside. And then some case examples in diagnosing uh, disease in this particular case, uh, epilepsy as well as one example of recording brainwaves during movements or hand grasp uh, experiments. So this work is done with uh, in a collaboration with multiple uh, excellent labs at UCSD and outside UCSD. In particular, uh, the lab of uh, Ahmad Raslan, as I mentioned earlier, and Sidney Cash at Mass General Hospital. A number of talented students and, and postdocs, uh, engineers, and neuroscientists at UCSD, and um, uh, also neurosurgery residents who have uh, helped in translating those devices from the engineering school to the the medical school. The work was initially supported by the Center for Brain Activity Mapping at UCSD. And once we collected some pilot data, we went uh, to the NSF and NIH and uh, applied for grants. And uh, those grants were awarded. So the work is currently funded by a grant from the NSF and a grant from the NIH. uh, we've made use of the NANO3 facilities at UCSD, which is a part of an NSF-supported national nanotechnology infrastructure. And uh, we've made use of the Department of Energy user uh, facility at Los Alamos, um, where I did my postdoc before and where some of my students uh, have uh, made parts of the technology um, uh, when we started So, with this, um, I'd like to thank you again for your attention, and uh, I look forward to discussions and uh, to the questions that you might have um, on on this or other aspects that you wonder about for neuromodulation. Thank you.
1: Shadi, thank you very much. That was uh, a really tour de force going through um, some of the technology that you've been working on and how far you've come and how far you have to go, though, still. Let's talk a little about the science because. There are a couple of questions about what you're actually physically doing with this high-resolution grid. So um, before I go to the question, so what is the finest resolution that you've been able to have in terms of distance between electrodes?
0: Um, uh, Thanks for the question. So um, we can actually go uh, as far as lithography allows us. And that's usually micron scale where we can see things that are useful, where we can measure things that are useful. So um, in, in other trials I didn't show today, the smallest that we've, uh, we've done is 30 micrometers uh, uh, in between. So that's, you know, fairly over 1,000 of a millimeter, uh, the smallest spacing that uh, we've looked at. And we do see uh, signatures of wave propagation, uh, particularly in, in epileptic discharges, even at those scales.
1: So one of the questions was referring to uh, one of your comments reg- regarding a four millimeter distance at one point, but even with 30 microns. So how many, so their question is how many neurons yeah. are in a given distance? Let's take the 30 microns. How many neurons are in that disk difference?
0: So, yeah, so neurons are arranged basically vertically in, uh, in the cortex in different densities. At their highest density, they're in about a cube of 50 micron. Uh, with a in a cube with a side of about 50 microns. Now, um, in in a single cortical column, which is like one millimeter by one millimeter, one have on average about ten thousand uh, neurons. So, uh, basically, in a four by four millimeter, which is the clinical grid, or this is actually a research clinical grid. Uh, clinical practice uses slightly even larger uh, separation. We're looking at a few hundred thousands to a million of uh, of neurons. And, you know, as discussed in in one of the slides, uh, what we are looking at is basically the cumulative activity of of these cells, right? So it's um, uh, a regional activity rather than individual activity. To know about individual cellular activity, we need to get close to the cell and record individual cells.
1: Yeah. So this is a key question. You are looking at regional waves of activity as opposed to the individual neurons functioning which is, is relevant to the next question, but I think you've in part started to answer this already. Um, they're saying the measurement seems to be across a two-dimensional surface, and that is the case. Your grid is a two-dimensional surface, um, but the brain is, of course, three-dimensional. So there are connections that are going up and down and the, neuro, the synaptic connections and so on. So how is this? how does this impact your understanding of what's happening here?
0: This provides us a piece of, uh, of the picture. And uh, this should be complemented with the recordings from depth, uh, along the depth of uh, of the brain. And so, you know, we're doing surface electrodes and some high density depth electrodes and other colleagues use depth electrodes in order to record the activity, stimulate and try to understand how different regions of the brain work together. Um, what? The goal of, of the work that I just showed is uh, basically to come up with a technology that will allow us to interface with the brain in a minimally destructive or a minimally invasive way without having to rupture any connections between neurons uh, or the intact tissue of the brain itself. Unless it's diseased, we have to do that then I, in my opinion, it's okay to to go to depth electrodes, uh, but um, if we want to preserve function and uh, interrogate that function uh, from the surface, we would be you know causing minimal damage, basically. So the short answer basically is that uh, this doesn't give us a comprehensive understanding it tells us a. A picture, like part of the, uh, of the picture was going on, uh, we've shown that that picture is sufficient enough in order to decode speech, for example, to decode movements, so we can use it for brain-machine interfaces. And some other uh, labs have used it for therapeutic applications for simulation, like to encode sensation, for example, and it's been effective. And, and that's why we're using that uh, type of technology.
1: This reminds me, as you say, it's just um, a picture. It's not everything, but it's a sampling of this. And for a comparison, I mean it is remarkable how much we have learned by not even opening up the skull, but just doing EEG recordings from people, which are even at a further distance from the brain, much cruder, and we can learn a great deal from that. And so now by getting down at this level, you presumably can learn much more. Um and I did a, a calculus
0: activity localize the activity better basically right so things don't overlap so get better spatial resolution
1: yeah. and you know and to you know to express the magnitude of this i i did a calculation that probably a lot of other people have done and i may have done it incorrectly but i think i'm i would be the premise will be there as you noted there with 80 billion neurons and all of their connections there are a quadrillion synapses so what does a quadrillion mean? And if I've calculated this correctly, um, that's equivalent to a thousand terabytes of information if you considered it just to be bits. And so, you know, some of you might have a computer where you've gotten it up to a terabyte of memory. You think that's incredible. A single human brain, thousand terabytes of information going on, and you're extracting part of that story with these, with these grids
0: and it's working at such a low uh, energy energy efficient and doing multiple processes at the same time that has developed over you know hundreds of thousands of years
1: yeah i'm going to jump now to another set of questions because several people asked whether this could be used for certain things and i think this is going to be an opportunity for you to say We haven't done that yet, but that might be possible. But let me just go through some of the things. So one person asked, can this technology be applied to blindness?
0: Indeed, there are actually clinical trials uh, in uh, which patients have been implanted with uh, electrodes in their visual cortex, And uh, those electrodes uh, take um, images from pictures that are uh, decoded into electrical signals. And then those electrical signals are stimulated basically in the visual cortex uh, to try to provide uh, as good as possible of a picture uh, of what's in the field of view. Um, The electrodes that have been used are more penetrating so far rather than placed on the surface. Uh, There are about uh, 100 electrodes that I know of that uh, have been in in that implant. So one could get a perception of the shapes of the objects in the field of view, uh, but not, you know, a full detailed uh, picture yet. But yes, these technologies are being applied in this domain. There are labs around the world uh, doing this, most notably in in Australia. Uh, There are a lot of uh, relevant clinical trials.
1: So, do you have any sense of um, how far that's gotten? I mean, are are there people who in these trials who were completely blind and can now make out shapes in their environment? And
0: well, I can speak of a study that was published in Science in December of 2020. And in in that study, basically about uh, 1024 channel grids, which is 16 by 64. Of uh, these Utah arrays, I probably showed one of the pictures in, 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 in my slides were implanted in uh, um, um, uh, in a non-human primate, and uh, the non-human primate was completely blind. Uh, but uh, with training, um, they were able uh, to uh, assess that the non-human primate is able to know the shapes of the of, of the objects in his trajectory, and so they are able basically to restore. Um, some notions of sight uh, for this NHP.
1: Yeah, amazing. Thank, thanks. So um, are there potential uses of this research to reverse chemo-induced peripheral neuropathy in cancer
0: patients? Um, look, it's possible. I um, I don't have direct knowledge in this field, uh, but we know that electrical fields can affect uh, molecule movement and the growth of uh, of nerves. Uh, so it's possible that one can, can induce or prohibit certain biophysical effects with the application of electrical or magnetic fields, uh, but I don't have more knowledge in this area.
1: Yeah, actually, since um, if I could throw in a bit because of work that I've done in in peripheral nerve research some years ago, and because I am a survivor of cancer, having suffered from chemo-induced peripheral neuropathy, I think the neuropathy is usually a and it basically think of it as an attack on the nerve connections between for example, your finger and your spinal cord. so if that nerve has been knocked out, putting electrodes in the brain isn't going to help you to feel something at that end. you need to somehow replace that neuron and that connection if it's been destroyed
0: um, right but you know one could uh, think about uh, having a wearing a device that can perform the sensation and transfer the signal to the brain to to encode the sensation. So things of this nature are being developed and tried right now. And uh, for the patient that I showed uh, was treated in uh, Johns Hopkins University, uh, they have that uh, uh, protocol basically of encoding uh, sensations back from the robotic arms.
1: Okay, great. Thank you. And then someone asked, uh, with neuromodulation, c- could neuromodulation be used in a cerebral palsy patient so they could function normally? Is that such? Is that a possibility?
0: Uh, definitely, it is. And uh, you know, I'm uh, familiar with the literature in the area that uh, in the past uh, deep brain stimulation uh, has been used effectively, and um, you know the devices have advanced uh, so that one can. Wherever one is able to do uh, functional mapping and targeting the appropriate anatomical regions in the brain in order to mitigate the disease, uh, they are doing that right now. Uh, obviously, for the pediatric pediat- uh, population, not all children are, um, 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 can tolerate uh, these procedures. Uh, so there are you know, certain age limitations uh, that uh, would enforce uh, inclusion or not. In, in some of these trials.
1: Thank you. Um, so um, still another a couple of questions still on the possible uses. So this person is asking if a pers- if all the person's nerves from the neck on one side were cut due to an accident and amputation was suggested, is there a way a prosthesis could be attached to be able to move the prosthesis, prosthesis with neuromodulation?
0: Indeed, yes. And, um, you know, that's one of the goals that our technology is aiming to, but there is a a larger initiative actually in the country. There's a program that was uh, announced uh, in uh, late last year called uh, Bridge the Gap that's funded by by DARPA, and uh, and that's basically aiming to bridge the gap through the spinal cord between the brain and different parts of the body, and that's for both, you know, recording and stimulation. That is reading signals from the peripheries and uh, sending signals to the peripheries or to prosthetics.
1: Thanks, thanks. And um, so the next one is about Parkinson's disease. So um, they understand the disease is uh, a result of the destruction of dopamine-producing neurons. In the substantia nigra, so they were curious as to how the brain implant would work in that case. Does it slow down the destruction of those neurons at all, or is it more of a muting of nervous signals from the brain to the
0: limbs? It's it's obstruction of the neural signals from the diseased part of the brain to the limbs. It may have an influence on um, slowing down uh, the disease, uh, but the, the direct influence is really electrical. And that is to electrically disconnect the brain uh, from the lens.
1: Okay, thank you. And um, if I could take a a moment. So talking about the stimulation of the brain, um, I know that one approach to studying epilepsy is to um, repeatedly stimulate the same place at a low level. And over time, if this is done appropriately, um, you can actually produce a seizure as a result, uh, an epileptic seizure, as a result of that stimulation. The brain changes; it, and in effect, learns from the repeated stimulation. So, this is this becomes some of an ethical question then, in terms of what you might be doing with brain stimulation. Is there a risk of this, and how would we protect against that?
0: I think you know, with, uh, like many things in our life, there is uh, already. Risk associated with with these implants. Uh, But, you know, there's always a balance between the benefit and and the risk, and the benefit in in most of these studies is higher. And now, you know, with with respect to the brain being plastic and changes over time and learning about basically that stimulation is muting my activity in this region. So I would rewire in order to uh, basically bypass the stimulation. Uh, That's where the high resolution. Uh, grids or the higher channel count uh, might help because then one would be able to more locally stimulate in specific regions and, and, and record from all of the surrounding region at high resolution. So if there are uh, neurological shifts, then one could mute basically the stimulation in the previous subset and stimulate still in a smaller subset, but in a different location in order to counteract this plasticity.
1: So, so this is a point where, uh, for a moment, if we could veer a little bit into science fiction. Um, you know, one of the questions that we always think about as we look at new technologies is um, to really be clear eyed about what is possible and what is impossible, where things might be going. Um, and before I describe this, are you familiar with a novel by Michael Crichton called Terminal Man?
0: I have not credited it. Okay. Before, well, actually,
1: no. given what you're doing, you should should read it. I'm not saying it's it's scientifically accurate, but okay. Um but I'll tell you what this what the, the premise is somebody has epilepsy and they decide to put implant some electrodes in their brain to stimulate in appropriate ways to inhibit the seizures, so they won't have these seizures. Um what I am troubled by, I'll just go on the record in case anybody else has read that novel, is that That this is a story in which the person who has epileptic seizures, the seizure, when they are unconscious, results in them targeting their attacks on people. So they actually physically go and attack people. And to my knowledge, that is not an epileptic seizure. Epileptic seizures are not targeted. They're unconscious and without that that kind of connection. However, um, is there a risk (laughs) of somebody... Um, having, um, you know, based on the stimulation, the stimulation starts to stimulate the wrong area and somebody could go crazy. Is this something that we should worry about?
0: <laughs> well, it's, it's a very good question to, to ask and think about. Uh, but the likelihood of that happening is probably very low. Uh, it's well known where uh, basically the lesions for epilepsy uh, happen. And, you know, those are typically on the temporal lobe, on the side of the brain, uh, a little bit further away from uh, a more uh, decision-making regions in the brain, uh, the regions that affect the personality and uh, the person's emotions. Uh, so, you know, my... Uh, uh, you know, first answer is that that would be less likely, especially as we make the technology more targeted technology with uh, having the higher resolution that we were speaking about. Uh, at that point, uh, you know, side effects uh, are things that uh, we are working to, to minimize. For example, now in some of the uh, epilepsy uh, implants, um, um, Some people hear ringing during stimulation, and that's because of the uh, gross stimulation of a larger volume of tissue. Then by having smaller contacts or stimulating smaller regions of the brain, one would want to minimize these types of side effects. So it's for a different reason than what you were thinking about, but uh, the side effects are, of course, a very important consideration. Uh, that are usually taken into account in the design of the clinical trial or the design of the experimental study.
1: Thank you. So, um, and actually, well, since we, we I veered into the science fiction piece, you're recording from the brain. Um, you're recording electrical activity of of neurons. Um, so, is this technology going to someday allow us to read someone's mind?
0: Um. Maybe the intent uh, to do some things, but um, uh, you know, get to get a comprehensive picture of all the things that are going uh, in the brain, maybe uh, is um, several decades far uh, from us. Uh, but you know, we are uh, we are doing already uh, decoding for intents, for movement, for example, or uh, you know, decision-based uh, thoughts. We can decode this. Um, Now, you know, going deeper into levels, that's what's happening, you know, and at a deeper level in our thinking, um, I'm not sure the science is there yet. Even though we might have, like, a mighty technology, um, aligning it together with the science is still uh, going to be a challenge that will take a few decades, in my opinion.
1: Yeah. I mean, so you may know that there are conversations about this sort of thing with functional magnetic resonance imaging, where people, for example, are theoretically able to tell whether somebody is lying or not. Um is, yeah, is that a it.
0: In, in that case, you know, one is looking at some markers, you know, that um, it's not looking at the detailed picture of the thought. No. And, I mean, there are many startups right now uh, that uh, are looking at uh, what's called like speechless communication. That is, um, you know, we get two brain implants, but we don't talk with each other. We don't even show any gestures, but our thoughts can be transferred between uh, between our brains. And, um, you know, is there some merit to this? Uh, th- there, there is scientific evidence that part of the things that we think about uh, could be decoded and transferred. Um, but how detailed uh, that picture or how detailed, you know, this encoding is, it's not there to know like what I'm thinking right now. For example, how good are your questions? Right, uh, It will be hard for you to, to tell. I can tell you that it's very good. Uh, but, <laughs> you know, uh, would I have an implant that will tell you that? Uh, in a few years, um, maybe not it will take longer time, especially the the scientific basis uh, needs to be sharpened, uh, even though the technology might get there i don 't think the science is there yet
1: thank you so So that actually leads directly to a question we 've somewhat anticipated it in some ways you 've gone beyond the question, but so Elon Musk is a proponent of a brain implant for interaction with a computer. How effective is this at this point, or what can be done with the current technology? How far are we with that?
0: So that, you know, they've uh, basically uh, made a few announcements, uh, showed that uh, their technology is really state of the art in terms of the number of channels uh, or the number of neurons that one can record uh, from the brain, and uh, the two things that we know of uh, that have been uh, uh, published is uh, uh, implants in in mice, implants in pigs, uh, and, uh, and actually one third thing recently was uh, posted through uh, media uh, is an uh, in, in non-human primate uh, monkey playing ping pong, uh, I believe, with uh, with that particular implant. So, um, you know, I think the advances there are marching uh, toward an area where uh, we can take brain signals to, uh, um, to do things on, with our computers or with, with, with prosthetics. Uh, the, the field was already there. This company is taking the field to the next level in terms of how many cells one can read from. Um, but uh, there are, you know, different uh, scientific opinions or uh, approaches to do this. Uh, Our approach is to read from multiple regions of the brain to get a complete picture. That approach that uh, Neuralink is following is uh, targeting smaller regions where Things are really implanted through that structure of the brain, and so expanding that over larger cortical areas to really um, be able to decode sensory or motor information or other aspects of the brain is going to be a technological challenge. and It is going to be a medical challenge as well.
1: Yeah, it's it. Uh, I mean, I think all of us at various points, when we use computers or our phones to look up information, have have. The thought has passed our mind, I wish I could you know, write this more quickly or I could get this information in the phone more quickly and get information back. Um, we can do an amazing amount already. But the idea that we could somehow just think about a question and then have Google search for that question for us is is very attractive, I think, to some people. So um, for the, for others of us, it, it's worrisome what that means. Aren't we already attached to our computers enough? <laughs> um, so let's see, I wanna go next to uh, a question just came up, which is, uh, is is a little bit different than some of the others about repairing some sort of physical connection or um, uh, uh, repairing a disease per se. But this one is asking about, can this technology be used to help people in correcting learning disabilities? Are there applications in that way that you've seen?
0: Yeah, indeed, there are uh, some studies that are ongoing right now. For example, uh, uh, the studies are typically made on patients that already have other types of disorders. Uh, For example, epilepsy patients, um, in in some of them, uh, uh, they have uh, uh, issues with memory. And then electrical stimulation has been shown to improve uh, their memory uh, over the baseline. Uh, using such implants, um, so uh, in normal people, it hasn't been tried right so the the barrier to to implant uh, neuromodulation devices in normal people is is high. Um, uh, but in in people with symptoms who have uh, uh, already implanted devices to treat their symptoms, uh, studies uh, indicate that uh, we can enhance the learning experience. Uh, by electrical stimulation.
1: Amazing. Yeah. Thank you. Um, this person um, didn't so much make this a question, but it's a statement that I think you might want to adjust, uh, address. They said their biggest concern in terms of ethics is the long-term safety of these devices in terms of bio-com- biocompatibility of implants. So um, what are your thoughts on that?
0: Yeah, and th- th- this is, you know, very important. And, um, you know, we, we do it uh, in a way that we think we might get those implants at one point. Uh, so that's the level of care that that, that we have uh, when we do this. So um, in, in all of the devices that I know of, um, all of the devices have to be implanted in animals and to be in a large animal model and um, uh, to to demonstrate that they are biocompatible for the life of the implant. Once that bar is passed, then, you know, the device could be moved uh, toward clinical trials to be used in humans. And so the stability and the biocompatibility are some of the biggest concerns. And that's why, you know, we have multiple levels of checkpoints. From the institution, through independent contractors uh, to get to the FDA that will review all of this information and uh, you know make sure that uh, we addressed all of these concerns before we get clearance uh, to put it in humans uh, so I think the concern is valid now. could the fDA do mistakes or could the scientists do mistakes uh, in this process? Uh, they could usually the things that we do are uh, peer reviewed and have to be you know agreed on by the larger community. We wouldn't get resources if uh, our work is uh, not reviewed to be uh, uh, of some credibility by our colleagues, so there are still you know uh, again uh, a lot of checkpoints uh, to be able to get there, and uh, we have to go through these all of these tasks before we move on to humans.
1: Yeah, so there's an interesting tension here, um, and you mentioned this before, um, between risks that you see and what the potential benefit might be. And hopefully we have both science thinking about that balance and the individual making his or her choice about whether they want the implant. So for example, I I would presume that most of us would not be excited about having a brain implant put in our head, so that we could, um, you know, perhaps uh, discriminate uh, a little bit more difference in color in our environment. We can already see fine, but we can discriminate a little bit more. That might not be worth the potential risk of of biocompatibility issues, or infection, or anything else. But if somebody is has has lost sight. Because of an accident, um, the chance of being able to see again would would uh, push in favor of saying, "I'm willing to take some of those risks."
0: Right, and you know this uh, conversation is actually um, right now is very active on on the national level, and that's why uh, we involve patients in the design of uh, of our experiments, and we start to involve patients in our grants and in our study sections. Uh, so that we can, you know, get the patient's opinion. Last uh, year, in in August, we've done a workshop that was funded by the NASAF, uh, in order to look at uh, the uh, advances in implantable devices and the needs. And we had patients who speak at the beginning of, uh, of our workshop, and uh, they, uh, of course, raised a lot of concerns and uh, raised all good points that they need to be involved in the design of the research, and also asked for the FDA to give them uh, the right of their voice to be heard in the decisions uh, whether these devices uh, could be cleared for their benefit or not. Because in some cases, it's, uh, the FDA is uh, more strict than what the patients would, would want them to be.
1: <laughs> so the patients are advocating for loosening up the rules?
0: Yes, for getting some of the implants.
1: Yeah. So, um, so what are your thoughts about that trade-off of people pushing for something that might not be ready? Because isn't there a risk if we go too fast that people will be harmed? And then we'll have to step back and slow down
0: again. Um, Listen, for the particular disease that, you know, that that issue was brought up, um, I'm not familiar. I don't think the FDA would loosen up or, you know, us as scientists would would loosen up the bar in order to get a technology that's half-baked, basically, to the the patient. Um, There are cases in which, you know, the patient's quality of life is uh, so low. That um, uh, they are in a position where uh, they favor being uh, subjects for trials for some of these technologies. Now, it, it doesn't mean that we have to do any unsafe procedure. Uh, you know, we we should go through uh, all of the safety marks and the animal experiments before we do that. Um, uh, but you know, how how you know it's a very thin boundary that could be moved to the right and to the left. You know, based on uh, multiple stakeholders. Uh, so, I think the most important thing is to involve all stakeholders in the conversation. Look at the pros and the cons, and make an educated decision that will eventually uh, benefit patients.
1: It, it sounds very good that you're you're doing that. Um, and you know, the the challenge here that I'm picturing is even as you do your research studies, um, if you at some point want to. Study a potential uh, remedy for blindness. Somebody who's been blind, who had sight, perhaps when they were younger, and because of an accident they're blind. They may be very attracted to the idea that this might work. So, how do you? I I don't know where what you've done in your own studies or some of your colleagues. How do you negotiate that informed consent process so that somebody who sees the benefit will also see the risks of what they're going to
0: choose to do here how do you well how do you deal with that <laughs> that's a really good uh good question and um you know i think in the consent form itself we'll have to inform the patient about the risks of the study and you know what what are the benefits and there there is any benefit particularly to the work that i i was doing uh, which was mostly for research purposes in this phase um but um, um you know, usually the procedures have to be done in patients who could, on their own, uh, make an, a a good, faithful decision and consent to the study. They they understand all the risks and the benefits, and they're able to do so. Uh, for patients who um, cannot do that, they're usually excluded from the studies.
1: Yeah. So um, I mean, just for the record, and I think it might be worth talking about this a little bit. I. Um, I think I'm probably pretty capable of understanding things like that. But for example, when I hit an end user license agreement or uh, a car rental agreement, um, I am notorious for pretty much not reading those. So how do you ensure that the patient actually absorbed the risks and didn't over-evaluate
0: the the potential benefits? Well, yeah, I I think the regulatory body would enforce basically the procedures based on their complexity. So if it's something that's really complicated and involves a lot of risks and some benefits, then this procedure needs to happen several days or maybe weeks in advance. And they have to involve the patient, you know, to make sure that they understand every step and every risk uh, before uh, involving them in the trial. Uh, For some simple experiments, you know, this could be done the day before uh, the the surgery, but uh, for things that could be life-changing, it has to be done many weeks ahead or at least many days ahead so that the patient and their family could understand the risks.
1: And that that sounds very good and ideal um, to have a conversation so that it becomes clear the patient doesn't just say, I read the document and I'm going to sign it, but they're able to relay exactly what they're trading off. They say, I understand there's this risk. That's very good. Um, so I guess related to this, um, one of the uh, participants this evening asked, have any experiments resulted in
0: injury um,
1: or permanent injury
0: to patients? Not that I know of, and yeah, not not in our experiments. Um, I'm I'm not familiar. Usually, we simulate, of course, the 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 experiments before we do them in in humans to make sure every part of the procedure is safe. Um, But I'm not familiar with uh, with any such incidents. Usually, we have a. uh, uh, safety monitoring board that's associated with every experiment that involves humans, and uh, we'll have to report uh, our progress and our findings and our incidents directly to uh, this uh, safety monitoring board that involves clinicians usually and those uh, this is independent from the study team they have the power to stop the study and um, uh, you know until things are uh, basically safe to uh, uh, to resume.
1: So I'm, I'm just thinking about uh, you know the future of of how this kind of technology might be rolled out. I'm thinking of the stimulation side. Um, I can imagine a, a pretty um, well actually. I can imagine somebody thinking this is a good idea. So let's say that I have um, I I am concerned that I have gained too much weight, and I think that the best way to stop gaining so much weight would be to not eat as much. And I, you know, independent of whether that really would work or not, but let's assume that's what I believed would be the case. Then, if I had an electrode that I could use to stimulate my brain to tell me that I was full, so I don't feel hungry and I wouldn't eat as much, then that would help me achieve my goal. Um, and that, I'm guessing, might be a relatively low hanging fruit in terms of being able to do that. Technologically, you just have to find the right area of the brain to be able to stimulate it appropriately. But um, is that the first thing we should be doing? <laughs> and so, there
0: are <laughs> indeed there are studies already doing that. So oh, really? okay. actually, brain stimulation can help in controlling obesity. Can yeah. help in uh, controlling depression. Uh, so um, it, it's really depending on the situation of the patient and how far they're out of control. Um, So
1: these are involved implanted electrodes into the human brain um, in order to do this.
0: Yes. Mostly Um, by the brain stimulation. Yeah. So,
1: you know, I'm, I'm just speaking off the top of my head here. It just, it seems to me that this is a, this is a situation where I would want this to be somebody who was literally morbidly obese and their health was at risk because as you've noted, I mean we're doing the best we can in the research to try and be sure it's safe before it's implanted in the human, but there are risks when you're doing something new so
0: yeah so th- th- this is basically piggybacking on technologies that have been shown to be safe and effective for many decades, but uh, steering its application toward an a new uh, a new disease a new application
1: yeah. Okay, good. Um, I want to take a brief aside because I, I really appreciate the question, and this is one of the things that um, can be a, a, a side benefit of these programs, is that uh, somebody who has identified their name, but they told us something about themselves, they said, amazing presentation. Um, I am an undergraduate neuroscience major, and I was wondering what kind of professional or academic steps you would recommend students to take If we want to work in neurotechnology.
0: Well, I I would recommend that you continue doing what you're doing is uh, basically uh, listen to as many talks as you can and to learn and also to identify your likes so that um, you are more informed when you make your decision, which area uh, basically you want to specialize in uh, and, and become your best. And of course, the best way to do that is to have a lot of data collection and know about the different pieces that uh, fold into the story of of this technology and its use. And then think about uh, where you as a person can contribute uh, most into these pieces. Uh, So I think, um, you know, uh, make sure not to rush um, uh, going one direction or the other. Uh, Rush in learning, like a lot of things, uh, but then uh, after learning, make your decision which aspect you want to go deeper in.
1: Um, I just thought of something we haven't done with our programs before, but might be interesting here, and I'm going to ask a question about something slightly different for these, the technology, which we may be there soon. What if somebody, you know, had learned that they were at risk? developing Parkinson's disease, but did not yet have Parkinson's disease. And a design was developed so that you could implant in the brain um, an electrode that would stimulate in such a way that would forestall the development of Parkinson's disease. So my question for for the audience is how many of you, based on what you know of where we are, where this is going, you can use the Q&A, just write Yes or no? How many of you would say yes? I'd go for that if I knew I was um, at risk of Parkinson's disease in the next next few years. And if you and you could put no if you think I wouldn't put the electrode in. So let's see what happens for the Q and A that way. Right. So so far, um, so far, no's are winning. <laughs> so um, I I wish we were in person because we could actually ask people. And here it's not comfortable to do that where people are theoretically somewhat anonymous, Um, but actually all people that actually the the no's came out early, but the yes's are starting to show up as well. Um, And then somebody uh, quite correctly said, I would need much more information before saying yes or no, because they would need to go through that proper informed consent process. So this is, this is, I think, one of the challenges of a new technology is it's, it's really exciting to think about what it will be down the line when it's all working perfectly and everybody just goes into the clinic. It's an inpatient or outpatient operation. It's, it's really easy, but moving from zero to that step means risks along the way. We don't know whether some things will work. We don't know what some things, what things might um, be possibly problematic until we start doing it. So we have to be, uh, the, the risk takers in order to make that, to allow for that.
0: And, you know, one other thing we also would want to think about is um, if things work out after the implant and uh, you have some reconstructuring or uh, some reorganization of the nerve cells, and this happens and it happened in the context of spinal cord injury, where electrical stimulation in, induced bridging basically across the damaged Severe nerves and so that you don't need electrical stimulation after several months uh, of, of the implant and The patient uh, actually because I think this has been translated recently to humans. The patient uh, have regained uh, some of their uh, of their function. So then is it safe to remove the uh, the implant and um, you know, what 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 is the impact uh, on, on the tissue when the implant is removed how safe it is to remove the implant as well so not only putting it in, but also taking it out, uh, should also be thought about, you know, very carefully, not to cause damage to what has already been repaired.
1: Yeah. So um, there's another question that um, is implied by some things I saw, and that wondering about. And I I appreciate this is putting you on the spot a little bit, but um, that's my job. So um, so if if at some point the technology you're working on gets put in someone's head. And maybe it is doing the things it was intended to do. Um, And so that's good. But um, it also does something else that was unintended and causes harm to that person, maybe even severe harm. Um, Who is responsible for that? Are you responsible for that because you came up with technology? Is the doctor who did the surgery to put it in the patient responsible? And yeah so how do we how should responsibility be allocated here
0: i i i think we all should be responsible and um, you know we started by talking about involving everybody in the decision um, that's of course based on the things that we know but there are things that that we we don't know uh, so um uh, in, in general i i don't think anyone has to to hold a responsibility if they unknowingly um, you know caused uh, uh, some harm and and hold that responsibility on their own as a single person, I think all people involved in the study um, will will hold the responsibility in, in in that respect and you know that's why i tend not to take um, single-minded decisions without uh, talking to my colleagues, even in engineering, but also on the medical side, to make sure we covered all of the effects that could happen, uh, you know, before we do the implants. And, you know, we've talked a little bit also about side effects today, right, that, uh, you know, there are side effects. And this is something that... uh, um, you know we're carefully thinking about and um, the community now given that the technology is advancing is thinking more about how to reduce these side effects and be more selective toward only the intended use so my hope is that uh, you know as things develop uh, we are truly more selective to specific uh, targets uh, in the modulation so that uh, we don't have to worry about these uh, other uh, things other side effects or things that we could damage in the procedure
1: yeah so um are you if you think about what um you're doing um and it sounds like this is something that's routinely part of what you do trying to engage stakeholders and and getting an understanding of what's important and what's not important and what will be helpful um, from the community um, to what extent would you say that is a common approach in um engineering do you feel like this is something that most of your colleagues do or is that unusual?
0: Um, I think most of my colleagues do that. Um, oh, nice. I, I would say that um, you know most successful uh, approaches uh, do follow that type of model where uh, you involve the end user and you involve the user itself while you are uh, designing the system. And so uh, we, we do that routinely here and we try to have in, in different sectors of our of our research.
1: My my sense is that you know we've had many scientists talk in this series, um, but only a handful of them made it really clear this is an important part of what they do. And I I uh I want to applaud you for, for that and, and seeing that because I you know, I think it's important because to do otherwise risks not only your research, but the research of others, because if things go wrong, then that's going to reflect on all researchers, not just what happened in, in your study. So that's a, a I, I think you know, I, I agree. It's important. That's why we have the, this series.
0: The, the real success is actually measured you know, by the by the beneficiary at the end. So if, if you don't hear hear them from the beginning to the end uh, throughout the process then, you know, we're not solving their problem. We're solving a problem that might be irrelevant.
1: Um, there's there's a another question here that's an angle that I I hadn't thought about. I'm, I'm hoping you have. So uh, the person says, how mechanically sensitive are these implants? If some future patient had one of these implants, you know, to stimulate a particular area of the brain, then they were in a car crash or some other injury that could, could shift the implant out of position and therefore stimulate the wrong area or do something. So what, what's that risk? <laughs> so
0: it, it is, it's actually a very good, very good question. And this is usually thought about in the context of, uh, um, of designing the implant. It's thought about uh, in terms of natural movements. For example, if we have an implant in the spinal cord, and then uh, the uh, IPG or the pulse generator is implanted somewhere on the chest, and then, you know, the, the patient or the person who is implanted, that implant has different types of movements of their neck to the right, to the left and twisting their back. And that leads to, you know, some extension. Um, and usually the, the leads and the device has to comply to all these flex movements. Um, in the case of accidents where things might break, you know, one has really then to uh, have taken into account the possibility of going in, removing the device safely and replacing it, right, if things mechanically break, break down. Uh, but in terms of natural movements in the brain or the spine or the other, you know, p- uh, parts of the peripheral nervous system, uh, this has to be accounted in the design stage. And we do leave room for, you know, these mechanical perturbations. And that's one of the main reasons. Actually, we we make our devices on a very thin substrate so that it can comply to those movements without affecting the fidelity or the quality of uh, the interface with with the nervous system.
1: So that question and, and your answer then makes me wonder about an, another reason that things might change, and that's um, development. So, is there any sense that there's that you probably would nor- you know, that you would normally not want to put one of these devices in a young child for the long term because as they develop their the the shape of their brains changing the interactions between the neurons are are changing remarkably it may be that um that it just won't be the right spot for a long time and therefore you get back to the problem of having to go back in to do another surgery is that a is that a conversation that is going on about the risks
0: yeah i i think that's um Probably known um, and, and we have to have like a medical uh, person uh, or medical expertise to say it, but I think um, after a certain age the the structure and the size of the brain doesn 't change much. things rewired within the brain. Uh, but the overall, you know, morphology and structure doesn't change much, and this happens, you know, at, at a child's age. I should not give you numbers so that I wouldn't be coded uh, wrongly. Uh, but but it is it's not you know for uh, uh, basically too many years for uh, from one one being born. Uh, so that that has to be taken into account. That's why those devices are not put permanently into somebody who is uh, basically their brain size is still developing.
1: Yeah, so that so if um, you know, I mean, it seems that that age is probably is is as you as you say, and I'm not going to give the precise number either. Is fairly young, but even if you ignore that, we do know that um, all of us who have had teenagers at home or remember ourselves as teenagers know the brain may not be physically changing in size, but it is changing in its connections, and so that depending on what you were treating, I mean, I could imagine. Many treatments that might be anticipated, that um, that those areas of the brain that you're trying to stimulate or inhibit might be changing, and so you you might need a plastic or a a changeable um, array that's that's in the brain to be stimulating different areas.
0: In, indeed, and maybe one other way to look at it is to uh, have more again, targeted regions to stimulate or record where, uh, you know, some of the electrodes are not activated for a long duration of time, and those will be implanted in closed-loop systems. So let us say you stimulate to get a certain function, but you also measure uh, the biomarkers of uh, of the effect. And then, um, you know, if you're not getting the desired outcome, then you can change the location of the stimulation and, uh, you know, read the biomarkers in order to adjust. So that's where having, you know, more contacts and higher channel uh, density or counts is important.
1: Yeah, well, that's a theme that's been throughout this talk in your presentation is you are, you are looking at both ends of this. You're, you're interested in stimulating elect- electrical activity of neurons, stimulating neurons, but also recording activity. And that ability to get feedback for what you're doing is key. So I I think um, we'll need to wrap it up now because uh, it's seven o'clock, but I want to thank you for a really interesting, wide-ranging talk. We covered a lot of different potential outcomes here. I I think you have a lot of people in the audience who are looking forward to new developments. Um, They they may not come fast enough, but I know you're working on it.
0: These were excellent questions and uh, really uh, deep thoughts. Uh, So I appreciate uh, all the points that you have raised and the audience have raised. Um, we we I have a very good it. audience
1: so that's to be expected. Yeah. So, yes. Yeah.
0: Thank Great. you Shadi. Have a All good right. evening. Thanks a lot. Have a good Bye-bye. evening. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.